You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. If we've not met before, I should say my name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here. Really glad to have you with us. And we're in a series where we're going through First Kings, um, and we're going to go into Second Kings, studying the life of Elijah and Elisha. So we're calling this series Grace in the Dark. And we took a week off last week while we had a guest preacher uh, with us, Ian Connell. And today we're back at it. We're going to be in First Kings 19. And uh, here's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about this reality. God's compassion for the spiritually depressed. God's compassion for the spiritually depressed. And before we start reading uh, in this chapter uh, about Elijah, I want to just review where we were in the previous chapter, chapter 18. uh, Because it was in chapter 18 that we had a massive sort of showdown between the false god, Baal, whom the people of Israel sadly are worshiping. What, what has happened is that um, there's a bad king, his name's Ahab, and he has an unfaithful wife named Jezebel, unfaithful to the Lord that is, and uh, they are both pursuing Baal worship. They're pursuing Baal worship for the people of God in Israel, and they're setting up altars to Baal, a temple to Baal, and they're, they're implementing uh, an actual false idolatry in the, among the people of God. And so what Elijah does is he's a prophet who's called to bring truth, and uh, he, he has sort of brought the reality that God is bringing judgment. There's been no rain for like three years. Uh, there's this drought going on, and uh, he challenges the the, the god Baal, he challenged the prophets of Baal. Baal is the god of the storm, the god of fertility. And uh, so what he does is he says, okay, we're going to get the 400, there's 450 prophets of Baal. You guys are going to build an altar and uh, you are going to uh, prepare a sacrifice and then call Baal to bring fire, to light the sacrifice. Just no fire on your own, just he's going to do this spontaneously. Well, they pray for the better part of the day. Nothing happens. By the end of the day, they're cutting themselves, gashing themselves, bleeding tremendously uh, to try to get Baal to answer. He does not answer. Uh, Elijah stands up and cries out to God in front of the people. These are all Israelites, the people of God. He cries out in front of them, and instantly the sacrifice is consumed by fire. God just brings this fire and this miraculous situation, and all the people bow down to the ground and And say, surely God, Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, surely he is God. And they they apparently turn and apparently repent at some level. And so it is this great moment, this great moment of victory and triumph for God and Elijah, his prophet, and for the the people of God. And, And you read that story in chapter 18 and you think, surely now. Surely now things are going to turn around. Surely now the season of apostasy is over. And then you get to chapter 19, and here is what we find. I'm going to read this in sections. We'll start with verses 1 through 8. This is God's holy word to us. Ahab told Jezebel 
all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked. And behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of the food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. We're going to look at three scenes here in this chapter. And the first one, they're all about God with, uh, they're going to ultimately be about God with uh, his people, God with Elijah the prophet in particular. This first section is God in the wilderness. God in the wilderness. After this powerful event in chapter 18, which I described in the introduction, uh, at Mount Carmel, you would hope that Ahab and Jezebel would have repented like the people, or at least the people who saw that Baal was a false god, at least they would have risen up and sort of dethroned this uh, Ahab and Jezebel. But but that's not what happens. When Ahab tells Jezebel in verse 1 all that had happened, evidently she wasn't there at the great showdown. When, she tells him of the, when he tells her of the sacrifice and then how the false prophets were executed at the end of the event, uh, she doesn't humble herself at all before God. Rather, she rages. And she rages with a threat against the one, Elijah, who led in this great uh, spiritual battle. And, and she sends a messenger to him. And, and she, she doesn't just say, you're, you're a dead man. She does say this. She, she does say, if you're not out of here by tomorrow, you're a dead man. It's essentially what she says. Get out of town by sundown like the Old West or something, you know, or you die. So she does say uh, that. But she takes an oath. Uh, Verse 2, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So she is taking an oath to kill Elijah, uh, saying that he is surely uh, dead if he sticks around. Well, it has a tremendous effect on Elijah because the text says, verse 3, he was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life life. Elijah's terrified of this threat. Now, he has just overseen this tremendous experience that would mark uh, the people of God for generations, and we're studying it, you know, here today. So, he oversees, he experiences God in this powerful way, but the next verses really demonstrate something different for Elijah. We see that his heart sinks to a very dark and discouraged 
place. We've called this series Grace in the Dark, and mostly we've talked about cultural darkness, the people of God, the nation, the northern kingdom of Israel descending into a, uh, worship of Baal. But he, sent, he, he descends into a personal darkness. He moves from the highest high on Mount Carmel to the lowest low. He ends up in this section we just read in the wilderness. After the threat from Jezebel, he travels almost as far as he could go, from the north part of the northern kingdom all the way to the southern part of the southern kingdom in Beersheba. He, he takes his servant and leaves his servant in Beersheba, and then it says that he treks into the wilderness alone. He goes into the wilderness all by himself, and he plops down under a broom tree, and he asks God to kill him. That's actually what he says. Look at verse 4. He says, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. Elijah, I think we could fairly say, is spiritually depressed. Now, I'm going to use the word spiritually depressed because I'm not making a clinical diagnosis. I'm not saying he's clinically depressed or I'm, I'm not trying to evaluate is his depression. There's all types of depression. There's all types of reasons for depression. I'm not trying to diagnose him in any way. And, um, you know, so I'm going to call it a spiritual depression because that he certainly is. He's despondent. He's given up. He wants to die. And if we're honest today, we have to say we don't often think of our Bible heroes like this. We don't often think of our Bible heroes as hopeless. They're the messengers of hope. We don't think of them as despairing. But Elijah is in good company. Actually, this experience is not unusual at all among God's leaders. Moses previously asked God to kill him. Job said he wished that he had never been born in the midst of his suffering. Jeremiah, when he, the prophet Jeremiah, went through troubling times, he actually cursed the day of his birth. Jonah asked God to take his life because it was better for him to die than to live. And this sort of personal spiritual disheartening, discouragement, despair, depression, however we want to describe it, it doesn't just all disappear when Jesus comes on the scene. It's not as if the New Testament, there's no discouragement. It's all sunshine and rainbows and happy, clappy uh, gatherings. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, he describes a time where he says he was utterly burdened beyond his strength so that he despaired of life itself. Now, we surely don't think of the Apostle Paul taken up to the third heaven with a vision of God to have ever gotten to a low point like that in his life. You know, here's the reality. To a, to a degree, at least to a degree, I think we've all been affected by the American prosperity gospel. It's in the air we breathe 
that a Christian should really not, you know, be a person that would ever pray a prayer like Elijah prayed, Lord, take my life, that, that, that a Christian who has all hope in Jesus should never arrive at a place where he or she feels hopeless. We, in our best moments, we know that, yes, anything can happen to anyone, but it just sort of pushes against our idea of knowing God, and that's because we live in a, in a culture that so much, so-called, and I say so-called because it's not the gospel, so much so-called gospel in our culture has to do that if you believe in Jesus, everything will go well for you. If you trust Christ, your problems will go away. And that's not the story of the Bible. In his commentary on this section of Scripture, Philip Ryken uh, says the following. He's talking about the health and wealth teaching, and he says the following. We have this, uh, I have in parentheses there. That's his subject. He's been talking about that, and he says this. If the health and wealth teaching sounds like the gospel, then we need a heavy dose of reality. Salvation in Jesus Christ does not bring an end to life's troubles. In fact, sometimes the trouble is just starting. Sometimes Christians have problems or get hurt. Sometimes they get discouraged and depressed. Sometimes they are afraid and run for their lives. Sometimes they quit in the middle of their jobs or abandon their callings. Sometimes Christians are suicidal and not just run-of-the-mill Christians either. Sometimes spiritual leaders get afraid, quit, run away, and think about ending it all. In this respect, as in so many others, what James said really is true. Elijah was a man just like us. Just like us. I'm so grateful that the Bible paints a real picture of humanity, a real picture of living in a fallen world, a real authentic picture of what it's like to be human. Elijah is like the top believer in Israel at this point in their history. Nobody like Elijah, and yet he finds himself in this personal place of darkness he may not be suicidal, threatening to take his own life, but he is, at, he is despairing of life. He is asking God to take his life. Finds himself in personal darkness. He says, what does he say? It is enough. It is enough. Oh, Yahweh, take away my life. If, if you find yourself in a place of darkness, maybe not as low as Elijah Maybe as low as Elijah. If you find your place, yourself in a place like that today, I hope in some way you'll be affected, and maybe in an odd way, even encouraged by the reality that the godliest people in the Bible experience deep low points at times. Elijah's a man like us, James 5 said, a man of great power, he prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years. A man used powerfully by God with great courage, standing up to King Ahab and said, it will not rain until I say it will rain, until God told him it would rain. Powerful. But but if you find yourself in a difficult place, 
like that. I, 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 pray that, that, I pray that there'd be no shame in admitting that for you. I'm all thankful for, you know, mental health awareness sort of ideas and campaigns sometimes in the church. I'm, I'm all for that. But I would say the, the greatest reason there should be no shame behind this is not just because we got the word out that it's okay to have mental health problems, but because we look at the Bible and we say this is the condition in a fallen world that even people who follow Christ experience this and it's okay. It's the Bible is authentic and reveals the human condition and reveals rescue from God as well. Certainly, we pray for rescue in this life, and we are assured of rescue forever in the new heavens and the new earth. So if that's you, I pray that, that this would sort of dispel the shame, that this would dispel some of the some of the uh, false ideas that I can't be real around Christians, that I can't say what's really going on, that i gotta, I got to put up a front like everything is okay because that's not true. I urge you just to please open up and let someone know how you're doing if you're struggling with discouragement or depression or even in this case despair. Please open up with someone and, and, and get help. This applies to all of us. It applies to all of us, but in our culture, it's particularly common for young people, teenagers, college students, to experience seasons of darkness like this, seasons where you feel alone and, and uh, hopeless, perhaps, or maybe seasons where you don't feel anything at all. Um, if that's you, please talk. Please talk to one of your parents. Please talk, if you're a teenager, to someone in the, a youth leader at the church or any, any trusted adult, Christian adult, where you can get help. Here's the reality. Like Elijah, many of us will find ourselves in the wilderness at some point. We'll all experience some degree of discouragement in our lives. Let's consider the context for Elijah's sort of spiritual depression. And again, I'm not diagnosing anybody's uh, heart here today uh, by just pointing out his example. I'm not saying this is what applies to you exactly if you're in this situation, but I think there's some helpful insights in this story. Uh, first of all, if you'll notice, he's isolated. He is isolated. He's been mostly alone for three and a half years. Now, he did have this time where God is miraculously providing for this widow and her son, and he's somehow connected with them in some way. Uh, actually, he prays and brings the son back to life after he died. So, man, like if you could pray over someone and they come back to life, I would just assume I'll never be sad again in my life. If I saw that, I'd, if I saw that, I'd be going, man, I can pray when I get blue and ask the Lord to lift my spirits if I can pray and somebody raises from the dead. But, see, even the greatest miracles don't guarantee that we're not subject to what is common to men and women. Uh, but he's isolated. So he wasn't in community. They, they, uh, evident, they were in another culture altogether. He left the northern kingdom to be with them. So he has not been in community with God's people for at least three and a half years. Even now, he's left his servant in Beersheba, so he's all by himself. Wherever this broom tree is, he's all by himself, alone. That's significant, 
doesn't mean that if we're alone that we end up exactly where he does, but the reality is that we need others. We need people. We are made to be in relationship, made to be in community, and perhaps there weren't that many godly people for him to be around at this time, but he's been, iso- he's been isolated, and perhaps that's taken a toll on him. He's also experienced great opposition, hasn't he? He's been in a spiritual battle. I mean, we all can say, man, I feel like I'm in a spiritual battle and I feel like I'm being tempted or the forces of evil are against me. We all can have that experience, but probably none of us have stood up against 450 prophets of Baal praying against us. You know, that, that's a pretty big deal. And now having none of us have had the queen of the nation say, I'm going to execute you. So he is under a significant spiritual battle. And this kind of spiritual conflict is wearying. Another reason we need community is that spiritual battle is wearying. It's wearying to the soul, but it's also, in this case, as we see with him, it's wearying to the body as well. He's also just come off this spiritual high. And I don't know about you, but, but, uh, but I can relate to the idea that after very spiritual highs, high experiences with the Lord or something very encouraging happening spiritually in our lives or something, a real breakthrough in an area, that real spiritual highs are very often followed by temptations and spiritual lows. I mean, think about Jesus and his time out in the, the desert. Oftentimes, I'm not saying if you're at a great place right now, Look out, because by Tuesday you'll be in despair. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying if you've had some real spiritual highs, that we should be aware of the enemy and realize that sometimes after that we're actually subject to temptation and subject to lows because sometimes we can, in a time of spiritual high, a time of spiritual blessing, sometimes we can uh, lose our awareness of how much we really need the Lord and kind of coast. So sometimes that happens. It certainly happened for him. And added to all that, this is really important. Added to all of that, he's despairing of life. Notice that Elijah is gripped with fear. Why is Elijah sleeping under a broom tree in the wilderness as far as he can get away from his home? Why is that happening? Because he's afraid that Jezebel will kill him. After he's already seen God provide, for God to provide and feed him from the ravens bringing him food, uh, miraculously make a little bit of flour and some oil, feed him and this widow's family, feed them for apparently years. After seeing God defeat the prophets of Baal and, and burn up a, just a, 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 a spontaneous combustion of a sacrifice happened before his eyes when he prayed, praying there'll be no rain, there is no rain, then praying rain and it comes right then. I mean, he has had power encounters with the Lord, but now he's gripped with fear. He was afraid and he ran. And here's what fear does. Fear deceives us. Fear will give you the worst possible read on the present situation And fear will give you the worst case scenario about the future. It will always prophesy a false future to you. And as we go through this story, we're going to see that, man, a lot's happening that Elijah doesn't know about. He is just reading his current circumstances through a heart motivated by fear. He isn't thinking clearly. He, he, He doesn't see the whole picture. 
And that's what fear does. It, it doesn't, it doesn't, fear, don't, fear will not tell you about the faithfulness of God. Your fear will not tell you about what the Lord's doing that you can't see right now behind the scenes. Fear will not tell you uh, about the goodness of God and his faithful love for you. Fear will tell you it's going to be bad, and imagine how bad it's going to be. It's going to be worse than that. That's what fear tells you. Now, here's the big point, and if we get nothing from this morning, I pray that we get this. How does God respond to this discouraged saint, this blue prophet, we could call him? Does he offer tried answers? I mean, here's Elijah, kill me, Lord. Does he come up and say, here's a t-shirt, Elijah, it says, let go and let God little coffee cup for you. Got... <laughs> Does he give him all kinds of explanations? I'm, I'm talking about his circumstances. What I'm saying, I wouldn't say to someone if they came to they were depressed, I wouldn't go, okay, we got three options, isolated, fearful. You know, I'm, I'm compassionate. That's what God is. But he doesn't give him a bunch of explanations. Doesn't rebuke him. This is why I know I'm not a lot like God, because I think I would say, are you kidding me, Elijah? After what just happened, what more can I do for you to prove I'm real? God doesn't say that. Doesn't say that. Doesn't rebuke him at all. Doesn't threat him, threaten him. Doesn't say he's disappointed. Wow, seriously, Elijah? Kill you? I mean, don't you trust me at all? Who do you think I am? I Elijah, this is deeply, dip, deeply disappointing. And I want you to sit in the divine disappointment for a moment and really feel <laughs> how disappointed I am. You know what God does? Let's him take a long nap and then prepares a meal for him. It's what the Lord did. He sleeps. He slept under the broom tree. And the angel touched him and said, arise and eat. And looked and behold, there was a... At his head, a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. God just says, you know what, son, you, need, you just need a nap. You need some rest. You need physical rest. We are integrated people spiritually and physically. And sometimes when we're spiritually wearied and then we're uh, despairing like he is, our body needs to be refreshed. He needs to sleep and he needs a good meal. And what, what happens after that? He ate and drank and laid down again. God still doesn't criticize him or rebuke him. He said, well, just take another nap. Just sleep some more, Elijah. He sleeps some more, wakes up a second time, feeds him again. And after the second meal, he says, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and he ate and, and he went to Mount Horeb from there. That's how God responds to Elijah in his low point. Do you know this God? Does that surprise you? Are you expecting some? I mean, this is the God of the Old Testament, right? It's the same God all over. But we think that, oh, the God of the Old Testament. I'm surprised he just, just torch Elijah right there. No, this is the God of the Old Testament. Yahweh, what does he do? He shows mercy. He shows compassion. 
Psalm 103 says that, that as a father shows compassion to his children, that's how God relates to us because he knows that we are but dust. That's all we are. He understands how we are made. He understands our frame and he relates with us. And I just wonder if we really know that God. Do we really expect that God in the Old Testament? And if you are in a dark place today, you need to experience that God, the God of the Bible who shows mercy to hurting people, who shows mercy to those who are in the dark. After all, he is with us in the dark. That's the whole purpose of this series is to see how God is with us in the dark. Well, he is with Elijah in the wilderness Next, he's going to be with Elijah in a cave. That's what happens next. So he goes to Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. Same, same thing. Verse 9, let's read the next section. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I... Even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. The Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. It's interesting, he was invited to come out there already, so apparently he didn't respond to the Lord who said, come out on the mount. And evidently he comes out after all this. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Israel. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, uh, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel... All knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So Elijah goes to Mount Sinai, and there's a ton of comparisons between this event and what happens to Moses. I'm not going to take the time to develop those out, um, including, well, i got to say at least one, including when Jesus is transfigured. It's the two people that have experienced God at Mount Sinai, Moses and Elijah, that show up uh, at, they're at the transfiguration and meet Jesus Christ. Uh, it's a very, very powerful encounter, but nonetheless, um, he, he, goes to the, he goes to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, and God says, why, you know, why are you here? He simply asks him a question. And, and he goes through this big answer that, man, you know what? Uh, I have served you, Lord, 
Uh, I have been faithful. I've been jealous for the Lord, but the people of Israel, they've forsaken your covenant. That's true. They've thrown down your altars. That's true. He had to rebuild the altar. Uh, They've killed your prophets. True. And I, only I, uh, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Well, that's not all true. Somebody's trying to take his life away, but he's not the only one following the Lord. So he says that to the Lord, and the Lord chooses mercifully to reveal himself. Because when we're in the dark, we need God to reveal himself to us. What we most need when we are disoriented, uh, when we are feeling isolated and alone, when we are confused, when we have lost our way, lost our hope, what we most need, a nap and a meal can, can be very helpful. But in addition to that, we need a revelation of who God is. And so that's what God does. He reveals himself to him. He says, come out on the mountain. I'm going to give you some signs. I'm going to do some stuff here to reveal myself. And man, there is this huge wind that actually breaks some of the mountain down. Uh, But that's not God in, in the midst of that. That's not the revelation. There's an earthquake. That's not the revelation. He doesn't want him to get right now that God is, you know, powerful, but I'm going to show you through the earthquake. Uh, There's a fire, you know, but that's not how God reveals himself either. And then it says in the ESV that that after the uh, fire, there's a sound of a low whisper. I don't know if often quote the King James Version, but it's perfect on this. There was a still, small voice. What's this telling us? What Elijah needs is not earth-shattering, miraculous signs, he needs the word of God spoken to him. He needs a word from God that comes as a whisper and can change everything. The word of God breathed out by God, that's what he needs. He doesn't just need a reminder through the creation that God is glorious. He needs a word in his soul, in his heart, that tells him that God is good And what does God do? He asks him again, why are you here? Elijah gives the same answer. And then God does something uh, really powerful. He he affirms, reaffirms his calling upon his life, on Elijah's life, and he reminds him of his faithfulness. So he, he reminds him of his calling, first of all. He says, you're to go out and you're to anoint some people. You're to anoint a king over Syria and a king over uh, Israel, and they will take care of the political mess that's going on in Israel. So he, he basically says to him, I am in control of the politics of Israel. I am sovereign over that, and I will take care of it. Uh, and so you don't have to worry about that. And I will also take care of the spiritual care of Israel because I've got another prophet coming after you, and he's Elisha, and you're going to go anoint him as well. And then he tells him this amazing thing, which I tried to emphasize when I read verse 18. Uh, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, uh, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. So he says, Elijah, you know, you are here saying you're all alone, and it's nobody but you, and all of Israel has rebelled uh, that, that's how it can feel sometimes. Am I the only one, right? Am I the only one? And, and here he says to him, there's 7,000 people following me in Israel right now that have not bowed, that are faithful. And what this says is that God's word to Elijah is, Elijah, you've got a very limited perspective. No matter how dark it is or how much you're struggling, I am doing a million things that you don't know about. 
And that's true for every one of us in the room. You know some things that are going on, but very, very little. You don't know what anyone else is thinking. I mean, some of the time I don't know what I'm thinking. You, you don't know what I'm feeling. I'm thinking, I don't, I don't know. So you don't know what God is doing in someone else's heart. You don't know what God's doing in your spouse right now. You don't know what God's doing in your parents' life right now. You don't know what God's doing deep down inside your child's life. I mean, you may have some observations, but you don't know their heart. You don't know what God's doing with your boss. You don't know what God's plans are for your health or for anything else. We know so very little and we make so many judgments and we're, we're, our hearts are tied so tightly to what we see and what we know and what fear tells us to anticipate. And just the, the still small voice of God comes in, a word from God comes in and changes everything. Hey, Elijah, Elijah you have no idea what's going on. I got plenty of people that are serving me. You're not alone. You're not alone. Not only is God with him in the dark, but there's a bunch of other people that are tied to the same cause. Followers of Jesus Christ. The still small voice assures he's in control. I've got a plan. I will work my plan. And the last section is he, he goes, verse 19. Let's read these verses. He goes and anoints Elisha. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, uh, who was plowing with the 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and mother and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them, boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen, and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. We're going to be talking about Elisha for a number of weeks, so I'm not going to spend much time on his calling here, other than to say it, it's kind of strange when you read it. So there's Elisha out there. He's with a couple of oxen in the yoke. He's got 12, rich family. If they've got 12 yoke of oxen, that means probably he's working it. If he didn't have siblings, they've got like 11 hired hands working the other ones. So he's out there doing his plow thing, whatever, bringing up the rear. And Elijah just walks by him, takes his cloak, and just throws it on his shoulder. So what, what's that all about? Well, it's symbolic. It's symbolic. Prophets were people who were empowered by the Spirit, and oftentimes the language is used clothed with the Spirit. So to take Elijah's cloth, his, his, his cloak, his mantle, and sort of put it on him is symbolic that you're going to be clothed with the same Spirit that I am, uh, called to the same office. And so he sacrifices the ox and prepares a fellowship meal, presumably for his family, his parents, and others. And then he says, I am with you, and he follows Elijah. So how do we apply this? Well, here's just the best Bible interpretation key I can give you. The Bible is about God. This story is not primarily about Elijah. This story is about God. And this account tells us that God is compassionate, that he is patient with his people when even after great victory, they don't see him and they believe they're the only ones. He's merciful. Uh, we're meant to see that God shows mercy to those who have lost hope and gives fresh hope, not just through signs outside, but through the voice of his word 
to our hearts. He tells us the truth that we are not alone and that he indeed is compassionate. Because he is compassionate, his mode is to work with us in gentleness. He, he is gentle with his son, Elijah, um, because he is a compassionate God who knows us and gives us what we need, his word. And I'm praying that if you are in the dark today, that you will know that God is in the dark with you, that he is not in the dark with you to scold you, but to care for you, that he's compassionate and that he shows his gentleness to you. One more quote from I gave the author earlier, Philip Ryken. He's just had a number of pithy things to say about this section. He writes the following, perhaps we need to get reacquainted with the God of the still small voice. Perhaps we need to be restored to sweet intimacy with God of earth, wind, and fire. Our God is a gentle God. If we want to see his gentleness, we need only to look in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus was gentle in the manger lying on a bed of straw. He was gentle with the sick, touching their wounds to heal. He was gentle with the grieving, weeping with those who wept. He was gentle with little children, gathering them up in his arms. He was gentle with women caught in adultery, forgiving their sins. He was gentle on the donkey riding into Jerusalem with kingly humility. He was gentle with his disciples, restoring them to fellowship after they had denied and forsaken him. Jesus Christ will be gentle with us as well. He will be gentle with the wounds of our souls and the sins of our hearts. He will even be gentle with us in our spiritual depression. Listen to the still small voice of gentle Jesus who says to everyone, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is what we need. If you're in darkness today, feeling dark, you may need physical rest. You may need nutrition. You may need to see a physician. You may need a clinical diagnosis. I don't know, but I I know you do need this. In addition to anything else, you fundamentally need to know this, that the gentle Savior comes to you in love and mercy with you in your darkness and promises to restore us in eternity in a new heaven and new earth. He suffers in our place on the cross to be with us. He is forsaken by the Father so that we are never forsaken. He was alone, all alone and isolated on the cross so that we would never have to be ultimately alone. He was condemned for our sins so that we could be accepted. And we are united with him and his people so that we, can, we would never say, I, only I am left standing. God is with us, and God has put his people around us. He's with us in the dark, and he's working his plan. Elijah's concern was for the nation of Israel and the future of the prophetic ministry, thinking he was the only prophet. And God says, no, I've got all that. And whatever burdens you today, I I don't mean this to be trite, But the scripture tells us over and over, God has it. He really does. He really rules over all. 
We need a still small voice to reveal the person of Christ to us and let us know that he is compassionate and renewing and restoring for those who find themselves in the isolation and loneliness and despair that sometimes comes to even the believer. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.